From the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast and our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, Atlantic City Suburban Philadelphia's number one news talk station, you're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. A full hour of stimulating, thought-provoking information you need to know, plus a whole lot more. Now with today's program, here's Jeff. Welcome to the show. I'm Jeff Nyquist, your host, and tonight I have a very special guest, Tenet H. Bagley. He is the author of Spy Wars, Moles, Mysteries, and Deadly Games. And what he has to say is extremely important. The former Soviet Union was run by the Communist Party and the KGB. Today, the Communist Party is apparently gone, and the KGB is in charge of the country. Russia still has missiles. Russia's missiles are still pointed at the United States. What Mr. Bagley has to say has to do with his experience as former head of CIA Soviet bloc counterintelligence in working against the Soviet Union, against the KGB. He has a description in his book of how false anti-Soviet organizations were created by the KGB, how they controlled their opposition, how they used strategic and tactical deception, double agents and false defectors, psychological warfare predominating throughout the entire process. A lot of people don't realize that after the Soviet Union was first created, Lenin set up an organization called the Trust. It was an anti-Soviet organization. It was set up to fool the West into thinking that Russia was no longer under strict control of communists, that monarchists and capitalists were gaining control of Russia. Does that sound familiar? In this entire Operation Trust, and during the period of the new economic policy, Russia was able to get diplomatic recognition from Western countries, and it was able to penetrate most all of the anti-communist organizations in Europe. The reason this is important today is that the Russian secret services continued to practice these methods of penetrating foreign organizations and using deception decade after decade, right up to the present day. So what we have is Russia able to create its own anti-communist resistance movements that it could control from within. So that in other words, dissident organizations and groups that we think of as anti-Soviet, anti-Kremlin were really peopled by Kremlin agents, and they were intended to fool the West and to fool us, and this has continued from the 1920s right up to today. The information that our guest today has is extremely important for understanding not only the history of the Soviet Union and Russia, but it's important for understanding what's happening right now today. So after these messages, we'll be back with Tenet Bagley, author of Spy Wars. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Thanks for making WIBG 1020 a part of your life. We are Live Radio 1020, WIBG. Where more people every day hear the truth. From Hurley in the Morning to The Wondrous Story with Dave Bailey, Jay Sekulow live in the American Center for Law and Justice, and Josh Henning Afternoons. South Jersey's Cutting Edge, Christian News Talk, and your station for Wimmage Oldies every weekend. WIBG 1020 and WIBG.com, plugging you into life. And now, once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. With me is Tenet Bagley, author of Spy Wars, Moles, Mysteries, and Deadly Games. 
Uh, he worked for the CIA. He was uh, chief of Soviet bloc CIA counterintelligence. Uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. You worked for the CIA from uh, what years? W when did you begin working? Well, I first applied in 1949 and uh, entered in 50, in the spring of 1950, and then I retired in 1972, 22 years. Of course, the main enemy at that time was the KGB and the GRU. When you talk of KGB and GRU, you're talking about the intelligence and security services, but in fact, the, uh, the Soviet Union was posing a menace, and that was the... Uh, the basic issue of the day, and that's actually why I joined. I was still uh, in the Marines. I stayed in the Marines after the war, at least in, uh, as a reserve officer. And uh, I thought it would be much more active and more engaged to deal directly with the main enemy, which was the Soviet Union, which was, at that stage of the Cold War, was becoming very dangerous. As you know, the, the countries were falling, Czechoslovakia and Hungary and um, the affairs in Poland were changing, and, and there was also a confrontation in Germany, of course. Yes. So I obviously wanted to get into that, and um, that's the reason I joined. Now, you actually, you were in Austria and Czechoslovakia after World War II. No, I was in um, Vienna from um, early 51 until uh, the end of the occupation in the fall of 1955. So that's when you, where you first started working against the main enemy. Yes. Perhaps you could describe the kind of enemy the Soviet Union and its intelligence services uh, presented for the CIA. Well, uh, uh, the way they presented in Vienna was a very large and vigorous organization, uh, probably at least five times as many intelligence and security officers as the United States had, even with our occupation troops there. They were everywhere in the city, but they were close. It was an exciting place to be because... Vienna was under four-power occupation at the time, and mm -hmm. never was there a place except Berlin where they were as visible and as uh, as close to us. Uh, now, a lot of uh, younger listeners are not going to know uh, what kind of uh, enemy the Soviets were. They were uh, taking over countries and breaking agreements. They'd been our wartime allies, uh, and they were... What, what exactly were they trying to do? Perhaps you could explain that. Well, as you know, there's been a lot of interpretation about that, and many, many books have been written, and there have been interpretations one way and another. But it's perfectly true that the Soviet Union had this uh, uh, world ideology which caused them to expand insofar as they could, uh, to work in other countries that were outside their sphere to impose a communist regime or to encourage the development of a communist regime. You describe in your book aggressive operational games. What kind of games would they play against the CIA? From the beginning, from the 1920s, long before CIA was involved in this at all, uh, they were going after their enemies as the best way to, uh, first of all, to try to penetrate the intelligence and security services of the Western powers, uh, that includes uh, all the Western European, especially. With me is Tenet Bagley, former uh, chief of uh, Soviet bloc counterintelligence for the CIA. He's written a new book, Spy Wars, and we're talking about the KGB and how the KGB operated against the United States. Now, you were just telling us that uh, the KGB was uh, working to save the regime, but it used very aggressive methods by going out and penetrating foreign intelligence services and, I suppose, governments? 
Yes, and as a step in doing that, very often they sent out false sources to get into the networks of uh, the foreign intelligence services that were, in fact, spying on them or, or at least watching their activities. Our aim was um, to gain strategic information on Soviet military capabilities and intentions and um, economic and other capabilities. And so uh, they would try to plant disinformation or false information on the CIA to mislead and to put moles or penetration agents into your service and into the U.S., uh, various U.S. Uh, government agencies. Absolutely. They started that actually as a, as a, on the orders of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union as early as in the 19, 20, early 1920s. As soon as they began to set up stations abroad, they uh, gave those chiefs, the resident, the order to penetrate at, as his highest priority the intelligence and security services of the country he was stationed in. And there's something surprising, I think, that most Americans don't know, is that from the early 20s on, the Russians were busy with the KGB at that time called the Cheka or the GPU. They were busy setting up phony anti-Soviet or anti-communist organizations, weren't they? They were indeed. That was more part of the instruction. Actually, the chief of the Cheka, as the KGB was called at the beginning. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're hearing clicking. Yes, um, we're having a few technical problems. I think I can hold it a little firmer and, and prevent the clicking. Okay, all right, good. Um, uh, with me is Tenet Bagley, author of Spy Wars, former chief of Soviet bloc counterintelligence for the CIA. Um, so uh, the KGB, which was in the early 20s called the Cheka and the GPU, they created these fake anti-communist and anti-Soviet organizations. Uh, perhaps you could describe how this started. When the communists took power in 1917, um, in the coup d'etat in which Lenin seized power from what was a young democracy. Already, um, a lot of Russians went abroad, and from abroad, they did their best to restore the regime of before, the democratic regime primarily, but also some of the monarchists were interested in putting the Tsar back on in power. Of course, the Tsar himself was dead, but these people operating from the places where they had taken refuge in Yugoslavia and in Paris, mainly there, but also in some of the other countries like Finland and Estonia, they worked against the regime. And so to counter that activity, the KGB sent out false refugees to get into those organizations abroad, and they're in those organizations to recruit others who were mostly military officers. Mm -hmm. And... Um, they started with those and worked against that kind of emigre organization for the next 10 years, primarily 10, 15 years. And it was only as they succeeded and as these organizations themselves became weaker and weaker by this kind of penetration, they turned their attentions to the intelligence services that had been supporting and, and providing questionnaires and money to these refugees. And so that the foreign intelligence services, especially of Britain, France, and um, Finland, they tried very hard to um, get into those services, and they did succeed. As we know, in Britain, they, they managed to recruit during the 30s when things were going very bad in Europe. There was the 
crash on Wall Street and then the Great Depression, not only in the United States, but in, especially in Europe, there was a loss of confidence in the capitalist system. And so an awful lot of people ideologically went over to these people. And so these resident tourists of the KGB had tremendous luck in recruiting students, diplomats, government officials, businessmen, a lot of people who thought that this was the wave of the future. They not only became communist in their orientation, but were recruited to spy against their countries. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in terms of uh, drawing all these people together, the KGB was able to make a system of penetration which allowed them to see what all their potential enemies or threats to them were doing. Absolutely. Nothing, nothing could be better for an intelligence or counterintelligence service than to have people in the enemy camp knowing what they can do and what they're trying to do and what they are doing. With me is Tenet Bagley, former uh, chief of uh, Soviet bloc counterintelligence for the CIA. He's written a new book, Spy Wars. Uh, it's a very good book, very interesting, full of the details of how spy wars are uh, executed. And um, uh, Mr. Bagley, I'd like to ask you about these moles, these penetration agents. Um, do you think the CIA was penetrated in the 1950s and 60s? Well, that's um, in my book, I speak about some of the revelations that came from our analysis of the false defection of a KGB officer by the name of Yuri Nosenko. I call it a false defection. I insist in my book that it is, and I have very good reason, and also confirmation from the East since the Cold War that I was right. It became obvious that the KGB was playing one of its operational games to hide certain agents that they had in the West who had been partially exposed by the earlier defection of another KGB officer by the name of Anatoly Golitsyn. And Golitsyn, while he had not come out and said there was a mole or there was any kind of special uh, deep penetration, he thought there was, but he wasn't sure. But he gave information about things he knew, very concrete things that had happened to him or that he knew about which gave indications, had we read them more aggressively, indications that there was indeed penetration, including the most important kind of penetration, which is the breaking of Western military ciphers. Mm. And some of these things were partially exposed by Galitsyn, and then out immediately after him came this fellow Nosenko. And it became obvious to me that after interrogation, after long investigations of all kinds of things, it became obvious to me that this was an operation of the KGB, that this man had been sent to us in order to, first of all, to hide these um, these penetrations. The Nosenko case began in 1962, at the end of May. He walked into us in Geneva, literally to me. I was his first contact. Mm -hmm. And he insisted he would never defect. And he then went back after the end of a few meetings and the end of the conference that he was attending, went back with his delegation to Moscow. And it was only a year and a half later when he came out for another session of this conference that he suddenly decided to defect, which he said he never would. And he came over to us. Well, what we learned about the penetrations in the West were truly from an interpretation of his statements compared with our investigations on the side. It was a long and complicated and difficult task, and one that wasn't easy because nobody wants to find a 
traitor in, in one's own camp. It would be much easier to pretend that there aren't any. And, and when the indications are based on this kind of analysis, it's very easy to brush them off and say, no, 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 this didn't really happen. And that's what finally, after years of his stay in the West, uh, Nosenko was accepted by CIA as a genuine defector, as he is still accepted today. He's still alive and he's living in the United States and is an American citizen. Hmm. So my exposure now of these things is based primarily not on the analysis and the information and the investigations of that time, but on things I did on my own after the Cold War. I saw the chance to get into the East, talk to my old enemies in the KGB. I knew they'd be perfectly willing to talk to me, especially since they knew me and knew what I'd been doing and um, knew that I knew all their people and their ways of operating. And so I had very informal, friendly reactions uh, to my visits there. Now, you have in your book uh, about these meetings that uh, that none of these fellows that you met with were purposely trying to betray their country secrets, but that you were, you were able to find out things by listening to what they did tell you. Well, actually, by by suddenly in the course of conversations posing a very detailed question, which had to do with why did so-and-so travel. Now, I didn't ask them, did this officer of theirs travel? I asked, asked them, why did he make this trip at that time, for example? And um, taken off balance in time like that, and seeing no sinister purpose behind my question, they answered very spontaneously and uh, on all kinds of detailed questions of this kind about people, and places and situations that had been mysteries up to that point. Um, these were in a friendly, sometimes at dinner, sometimes in um, an evening of wine drinking, sitting around a conference table and then talking afterward in the evenings uh, in some of these round tables, the east-west get-togethers. But I want to stress this was in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. This was uh, that little period after the collapse of the Soviet Union that offered a tremendous opportunity, a real opening. A lot of people got in, a lot of people from the West went, and there was a window open during that time. And it was that that I seized on my own without any connection with the CIA or anyone else, just for my own curiosity and to see whether I had been right in the analyses I'd made during my service. And that window has closed. Mm. This is a different world today. In Putin's Russia, they're paying much more attention to the security service, which of their veterans talks to whom and how, and a lot of the informality that I profited from is gone. It's finished. Hmm. I was lucky and uh, did get these confirmations, which I speak about in my book. Now, it's fascinating. The CIA itself refuses to look at any of this information or attempt to reevaluate Nosenko's defection. How can we account for the fact that, and I gather from your book, that, that yourself and other experts were suspicious of uh, Nosenko and thought that he was contradicting himself in interrogations? How was it that the CIA would accept a man who was so obviously problematic as a genuine defector and then send him to then teach at FBI and CIA schools afterwards? Well, I think that there's a tremendous capability to believe what you want to believe, and I also speak a lot about that in my book, about this tendency we all have to deceive ourselves. And the 
only answer I can think of to your question, because I don't believe any of the serious points I make in my book, any of them have been properly explained. So there are a lot of loose threads hanging, and the CIA has been perfectly willing to consider them anomalies or misunderstandings or perhaps even a little little white lies here and there, but nothing that would affect the status of the guy as a genuine defector. So they believe that he's genuine, and therefore they uh, took him to their breast as a collaborator and friend, which he is to this day. To this day. Now let's talk about the kind of damage that a false defector brings with him in his train. This uh, acceptance of Nosenko, acceptance of a false defector, would help to prevent investigation of possible links, prevent a mole hunt, prevent uh, security measures from being taken that would prevent uh, further leaking of information. Absolutely, yes. And it would also strategically mislead the United States, wouldn't it? I don't know about the strategic aspect of it, because Nosenko didn't give much information of a high strategic importance. It was strictly counterintelligence, and he was hiding sources that they had mm -hmm. recruited in the, in the West. It, it's interesting. Uh, to support Nosenko's story, there were double agents, weren't there, feeding information to tend to give credence to what Nosenko was saying. There were indeed other sources that were uh, giving uh, support to the genuineness of Nosenko's defection. And, of course, from a, a larger strategic game point of view, if you did not accept Nosenko as genuine, then these sources had to be under uh, Soviet control, didn't they? Not, not automatically. Those who think along the same lines as I do have been accused of saying that anyone who thought that Nosenko was a genuine defector, or anyone who said it, must himself be a fake. No, no, I don't think that at all. Because the KGB spread information within its own ranks mm -hmm. that was false. They, they put out, uh, for example official briefing documents, classified top secret, circulated within the service explaining how a couple of American spies inside the Soviet military, that's uh, Peter Popov and Oleg Benkovsky, two very important spies, the most important ones of the whole Cold War. They um, said that it was a surveillance of diplomats in Moscow or things like that. So they were giving false information not only to us, but also to their own personnel. And therefore, some of these personnel who have come out as genuine defectors say that they believe that Nosenka was a genuine defector are telling the truth as they know it. Mm -hmm. Because they'd heard it within the halls of the KGB. Absolutely. Yeah. I, was, I had a very interesting talk with one of them. He told me some of the details that he'd been officially told within the halls of the KGB, and then said that he um, had talked it over with one of his colleagues, the two of them had realized that this had to be false. They realized that they were being fed a, a line. Hmm. So we're talking about an extremely devious organization here in the KGB that that fool their own people, that pass false information through a variety of sources, both controlled and not controlled. Absolutely. Now, um, getting back to believing what you want to believe, when you've got all this information flowing out, all this false information flowing out, and then you've got people like yourself trying to piece together the truth. When the false information consistently paints a rosy picture or a picture of something that you want to believe, then it's the management, or you could say 
the higher ups within the CIA that want to believe the good news. And so rather than paying close attention to what the proper analysis concludes, they conclude what is more convenient bureaucratically. Wouldn't that be a description of what happened? Yes, it would indeed. So quite ingeniously, the Soviet spymasters understood the psychology of the people they were feeding the information to and were banking on the fact that that this urge to believe what we want to believe would predominate. I can only assume, yes. Yes. And if this can be applied to, for example, spy games, it could, I assume, be applied to foreign policy and uh, all kinds of other areas as well. The attempts by the Soviet Union to mislead us in every field, economic, military, strategic, was systematic and organized, and by organized I mean there were specific organizations set up within the KGB to think of these things, how to do them, and how to plant the stories and recruiting the agents and to do it with. So deception has been a major factor in Soviet policy since the beginning of the Soviet Union. So they've got decades of practice and decades of historical experience. So you could say that this was basically part of the nature of the regime and its security services. You certainly can, and and that's absolutely correct. It's uh, been called a counterintelligence regime, putting counterintelligence right at the very center of the regime, and it's um, not inaccurate. That's the way it is, the way it has been. And except for that brief window in the 90s when there was the confusion following the collapse of the Soviet Union, We've got that same group in power in Russia today, don't we? Yes, more than ever. (laughs) If it's possible to be more than ever, um, they, they, they don't have the Communist Party any longer to control absolutely everything, including the press and everything that you can think of in social life. No, they don't have that, but they do have KGB people and internal affairs, police and other, in, I would say, a very large percentage, possibly most, of all the key posts in today's regime under Putin, most of them are from the services. An analysis was done of that recently by a think tank in the States, and the number they came up with was even higher, something like 80%. Wow, 80%. And of course, if these people excelled at conspiracy and were so effective for so long, it's no wonder that they continue to gain total power over the uh, democratic Russia. It would be incomprehensible if they didn't. Yes. This is their mindset. This is the way they think. This is the way they work. And don't think for a minute that the murders of Litvinenko in London recently or of Anna Politkovskaya, the really active journalist and others, there's something 30 or 40 recent murders, was anything different uh, than what they had been doing before. They didn't have that kind of opposition before because they could suppress it at the root, but it came with the so-called democratizing of Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union, and then they managed to get rid of them by their old techniques, poison, gunshot, and uh, mafia hits. I'm sure that they could get the mafia to make a hit where they wouldn't have to use the specialized people that they continue to employ within the state security. So in a way, the old Stalin method, the knock in the middle of the night with them dragging you out to be taken for interrogation and then to the gulag, now they can just have 
a hitman, a common criminal, hired to bump you off. Yes, they do warnings. They have a thing called soft poisons as against the kind that was used to uh, kill Litvinenko, the um, KGB defector in London, or the bullet that did uh, Anna Politkovskaya. They have methods of warning people and uh, telling them to stop what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They're not killing everybody who stands up and, uh, no. and opposes them. They're, they have, certainly their hit list has priorities. Yes. Uh, with me is Tenet Bagley, author of Spy Wars, former chief of Soviet bloc counterintelligence for the CIA, and we'll be back with our guest after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Thanks for making WIBG 1020 your first choice for the good news and the local news. The overwhelming response from throughout all of Atlantic City, Cape May, and suburban Philadelphia to our exciting lineup of programs begins with Harry Hurley and Hurley in the Mornings from 7 to 11. Then at 12 noon, it's your chance to call in and talk with Jay Seculo live. That's right, Jay moves to his new time at 12 noon. It's your chance to talk live with Jay. Then at 1 p.m., it's New Life Live with Steve Arterburn and the gang. As always, your questions are answered live right here on WIBG 1020. And at 2 p.m., join Dr. Charles Stanley for his new time slot right here at WIBG for In Touch. We're so thankful for the overwhelming response to WIBG 1020, and we thank you. And we encourage you to please sponsor and support the advertisers and programs you hear on Atlantic City, Cape May's number one home for Christian news talk and local two-way talk. WIBG 1020 AM. And now once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Back in the early 1960s, a KGB defector named Anatoly Galitsyn came over. He had information about compromised Western codes about compromised Western secrets. Shortly after he defected, another defector came over. Well, initially he, he brought information without defecting. His name was Yuri Nosenko. And our guest tonight has written a book, Spy Wars, about why Galitsyn was right in his information and why Yuri Nosenko was a false defector meant to bring a false interpretation to the information that Galitsyn had brought over. And uh, it's very important in interpreting the whole history of the Cold War to know which defectors are false. And the fact is that the CIA embraced a defector that was sent over by Moscow to deceive them, to mislead them about what was actually happening on the ground with different spies and the penetration of different agencies and the stealing of secrets. Now, it, it's fascinating, uh, some of the little details in your book. With me is uh, my guest, uh, Tenet Bagley, author of Spy Wars. And uh, you talk about one of these uh, KGB officers uh, said something to a German publisher about uh, ongoing operation when he was talking about how spare of details this uh, former mole inside, uh, what, what was it, Radio Liberty, and the the publisher said, you know, this guy's memoir doesn't have any details. And, and the KGB officer said, well, what are you, naive? You know, he's part of a, a link in a chain in an ongoing operation. Uh, what what do you suppose that, that meant? Do you suppose it meant that the KGB just was always under the surface, continuing to do its work? Oh, yes. By the way, when we use the word KGB, it's not inaccurate to call it KGB, not only from the beginning of the Soviet Union, but also to today, because... The people are the same, their mindset is the same, and they 
keep their old ways and their old organizations. And so the special units to create poisons for murder abroad, that's been in existence since the early 1920s, and it's, it's still in existence today, and certainly was responsible for the most recent killing of um, Litvinenko in London. The organizations for deception, for disinformation, as they call it, is still the same old gang. You mentioned Litvinenko in, in, in London, who was poisoned last November by polonium-210. Um, were there any earlier uh, poisonings, radioactive poisonings, that you're aware of? The only one that had a radioactive element in it, nothing like this, was the attempt to kill Nikolai Kochlov, who was a defector from the KGB, in a very sensitive position because he had been in the murder section and had himself committed uh, no murders, but was sent out to commit, um, to kill the head of a Russian emigre organization, the NTS, in Frankfurt. And he was drinking tea and making a speech in a conference and suddenly got sick. He almost died before they could diagnose what had happened to him. They thought it might be thallium, rat poison, but in fact it turned out to be irradiated rat poison. So there was indeed a nuclear element in an, an earlier assassination attempt, but but not the kind of Litvinenko. And uh, my understanding is, is that uh, uh, one of the effects of being irradiated like that is that you could develop a galloping cancer, and it, uh, you don't necessarily die of radiation poisoning in the spectacular way that Litvinenko died. No, indeed. And you die in a way that is very difficult to diagnose, and it's one of the reasons they use it. It's one of the principles of their special laboratory in the KGB, which is to develop ways that, to kill so that even an autopsy won't show small radiation bits. The radioactive element of it will disappear probably before anybody thinks to do an autopsy. So uh, in the case of Litvinenko and Koklov, it perhaps was an overdose? No, it wasn't. It was very subtly done, and it was not detected until... Uh, he had been in the hospital, uh, he had seemed to get a little bit better, and he was out, and then he got sick again. Mm -hmm. And then they sent him to an American military hospital in Germany. And as I understand it, a relatively young American doctor was the one that said, hey, wait a minute, let's do this test and that test. And uh, that's where they found it. So it was not a big mistake. It was not an overdose. It was a well-done operation. But thanks to this doctor, it was detected. And by the way, Kochloff not only survived, this was in 1955, 56, as I remember, but is alive today. Yes, in fact, uh, the man who wrote the introduction to my book, Origins of the Fourth World War, is a friend of, of Dr. Kochloff. Oh, yes. Yes, so he, he is alive. He survived all that. That's quite a, a remarkable story. Um, so that we know that these are methods that the KGB uses to uh, silence its enemies or, or kill its enemies, which means that besides being an organization very uh, adept at lying and deception, it's an organization that's very adept at murder. Especially adept. I would say they've developed their adeptness over the years, and by over the years I mean 70 years, because this laboratory was first established in the 1920s, and that's a long time ago. Now, I get letters when I write my column, I get um, emails all the time from Americans, from Europeans, from people all over the world saying, hey, uh, Nyquist, you're naive. Uh, 
the CIA is just as bad as the KGB. The CIA is engaged in the same lies, the same murders, all these things. Uh, and, you know, I want to tell them, I want to write them back and say, you know, there's no comparison between the CIA and KGB. Could you speak to that, perhaps? Well, I would say if somebody cannot tell the difference between cholera and a common cold, then there's absolutely nothing to be said to such a person. It's probably hopeless. <laughs> yes, very good. That is very good. And, and you know, talking about that comparison, I mean, we could just speak to how big the KGB is compared to how big the CIA is. You've mentioned numbers before in, in your service in, in Vienna. Uh, isn't the, the KGB something like 20, 30, or 100 times bigger than the CIA? Well, if you take their whole structure within the Soviet Union and their helpers, I would say it's so far greater than the CIA that it can't even be compared. It would be like comparing an insect to a, to a full-blown mammal. Yes. Isn't that part of the problem of coping with the KGB is that it's so big and it's so alien to American sensibilities that it's hard for us to wrap our mind around it. Absolutely. And for many people, I think, impossible. Um, I, I found that out, obviously, myself. I've been a victim of that, if you like. And I can only ask anybody who does read my book that they simply read the book and look at the fact and find any other explanation that they can find, but not to tick it off in general by saying, oh, they wouldn't do that, because, yes, they would do that. And not only would they do it, they've been doing it for 70 years under the Soviet Union, and they're still doing things like it today. Now let's talk about the aftermath of the Nosenko affair. You were involved in interrogating Nosenko. You suspected he was a false defector. So did your colleagues. For the reasons I spell out in my book. It was not a suspicion. It was a, a founded view. A founded view. And you and your colleagues, you knew that this had implications, greater implications, for the entire American intelligence service and the keeping of America's secrets and security. And so when Nosenko was embraced, a, a sort of curse fell on those who were uh, saying, hey, look, this guy is not for real. Could you maybe tell us about the fallout and about the hearings and so on that happened later on? Well, um, first of all, there's been a major campaign to uh, stigmatize James Angleton, the head of counterintelligence, who was not my colleague. He was uh, in a totally separate part of the CIA from myself. I was in the operational part, and he was in the staff, which is an advisory type of organization. Mm -hmm. But um, they made great efforts to pin on him the label of paranoid. It's almost like the old saying of Tam Yankee, because when they talk about Jim Angleton, the word paranoid comes up now because of this long campaign to say that he was a clinical paranoid. And so, too, was uh, that earlier defector, Golitsyn. Now, paranoia is a fairly difficult thing to uh, diagnose. And I would recommend also to people to substitute a much simpler word like skeptical. Mm. as against paranoid. There's nothing wrong with being skeptical, I don't think. And I think in dealing in counterintelligence matters, it damn well is essential to be skeptical. But skepticism has been sort of ruled out because there is a general feeling, oh, no, they wouldn't do that. Yeah, in fact, there was a book written by Tom Mangold called Cold Warrior, in which he claimed that, that Anatoly Galitsyn was a clinically diagnosed 
paranoid. I think he said he was paranoid schizophrenic, but I'm not remembering exactly. I don't think the schizophrenic, but still clinical, clinical clinically diagnosed paranoid. paranoid yeah. and and that uh, that Angleton fell under the spell of this paranoid personality and was himself sort of uh, by implication sick. Yes, <laughs> and um, Angleton like everyone else, may have had a trace of exaggerated skepticism. And especially in his later years, when um, some of his exaggerated remarks under pressure from journalists and others have been used against him, and I think he he did have a few excesses. But believe me, through all those years, he was not only respected, but honored by a number of chiefs of the CIA from Donovan up through Colby. But Colby fired Angleton. Yes, and all the directors up to that point uh, not only respected Jim Angleton, but also believed him to be a serious and intelligent and sane person. Now, were they all uh, unable to recognize this paranoid streak? I think um, it tells a lot that people are using it so strongly today because it's obviously one effort to suppress this whole message that he has come to represent and to some degree myself. So what kind of things did they say about you? Um, well, in my book, I mentioned some of the things that have been said in the late 70s when this question came up again in connection with the reassessment by the House Committee on the Kennedy assassination. And there, the CIA spent its time testifying not about Oswald, but about the terrible mistakes that I had made in dealing with Nosenko. It was said that I was um, incompetent, uh, abominable, zero. Now, uh, now this is something we haven't talked about. This whole Nosenko affair is connected with the uh, JFK assassination, isn't it? Well, yes, yes, it is. And I think your listeners should really pay serious attention to this. I say in the book, and I have every reason to believe it, that Nosenko did not tend ever to defect. He would have come to the West from time to time in limited periods of meetings with us and would have done whatever the deception specialists in Moscow wanted him to do against us, covering up some of the leads, as I just mentioned, given to us by the earlier defector, Galitsyn. But in the meantime, before he came out the next time, Kennedy was assassinated by a man who had just come back from three years in the Soviet Union with a Soviet wife. And the panic that the leadership of the Soviet Union felt in this is understandable. Mm-hmm. Because they said, oh my God, they're going to think we did it. Now, I strongly believe they did not do it, that Oswald did it entirely on his own. I think that's been very carefully researched and very carefully analyzed by every kind of law enforcement specialist in, in the United States. But the former KGB officer, Oleg Kalugin, who was at that time in the KGB in Washington, and he talked of the panic that I've just mentioned and said that the KGB in Washington was getting panicked telegrams from Moscow saying to use every means possible, every source to convey to the Americans the fact that this was not, repeat, not um, theirs and that they had no interest in Oswald and so forth. And that was the message that Nosenko brought. Now, I say that I believe that's the reason why suddenly in 1964, when he came out again, the reason for Nosenko's defection was that they needed to have him as a defector in order to testify that the KGB had no interest whatsoever in Oswald. 
Mm-hmm. It was an exaggerated message, and it was a pity because it raised a lot of people's suspicions. It had the danger of being misinterpreted as a lie, and that's one of the concerns I had and one of the reasons we needed to do an interrogation, because we didn't want to leave that possibility that Nosenko was hiding some Soviet participation in the assassination. And in fact, uh, what uh, Nosenko claimed was that he had seen Oswald's KGB file, isn't that right? Not only that, he had been personally responsible for studying it to see if the KGB had had any connection. He was given this order by his chief, and that chief had gotten the order directly from Khrushchev uh, personally. So not only was Nosenko handling the file himself, but he learned why the KGB uh, refused Oswald's request to come back to Russia. Well, Nosenko claimed a direct observation of the arrival of this telegram from Mexico, which had nothing to do with his job. And actually, you'll find, as I mentioned in my book, Nosenko's story gives him four points of contact, four points of contact with the Oswald matter in Russia. That's um, most unlikely, and especially to have him come out just a few weeks after the assassination with this message, Mm -hmm. with his exaggerated message left little doubt that it was a message from the KGB, a true message, yeah. I think. Uh, I mean, from the Soviet leadership, really, in this case, the KGB being the messenger. So it was, a, it was a message that was overdone, but it was a message that they sincerely wanted to convey as being true. Oh, surely. I mean, I have no reason to believe they had an interest in killing the American president. Yeah, they didn't want World War III just then, did they? And the evidence of the investigators shows the same thing, that Oswald did it alone. So then later on, in the 1970s, this whole matter of Nisenko came up before a congressional committee, and that ended up being drudged up, and your role and other people's role. So my understanding from your book, Nisenko testified before this committee, and how did they react to his testimony? They found so many contradictions in what he said, compared to what he had said earlier, that they flatly said in their final report, Nisenko was lying. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, so when Nisenko goes up years later to talk to the the congressman, they didn't believe him. They did not. Uh, just as you and others in the CIA did not believe him when you got a close look at him. Yes. And yet the CIA itself sent out someone to defend him to try to correct the record and say this is a reliable person. Absolutely. And in so doing, um, distorting the record. He told untruths, which in some cases I know to be knowingly untrue. He knew the other side. Now, have have we ever sent uh, an agent like this over to Russia? Goodness, no. (laughs) It wouldn't... That we would be this competent, that we could get into (laughs) this tightly organized, hugely surveilled and uh, controlled society and plant somebody in there we tried back in the late 40s and early 50s. Some were parachuted in, some were sent across the border from from sea. They were brought ashore, all with the idea of establishing themselves in Soviet society and uh, making themselves uh, useful sources of ours. But it was a naive and clumsy operational effort, huh. and it never succeeded. Never succeeded. We never did get a, a, a mold that could live long enough to uh, to work the way theirs did. Absolutely not. We could not plant them purposely. Now, what we did do, we um, managed to get sources and keep them. And Popov, uh, this was a colonel in the GRU, lieutenant colonel, 
who came to us in Vienna in my time, I was directly involved in the operation, mm-hmm. um, came to us and worked safely for us for at least six years, five years. And Oleg Penkovsky, the other spectacular spy, was also from the GRU. Also from the GRU, and both of them were immensely valuable, not just for the counterintelligence, for what the, what the GRU was doing, the Soviet military intelligence, but also on Soviet military weapons, procedures, policies, plans, strategy. They were fantastic sources, and I've spelled some of that out in my book. Minkowski, for example, gave information on Soviet missiles that made it possible for us to understand what the Soviets were doing in the Cuban Missile Crisis, made it possible to know that these were surface-to-surface missiles and that they would were not yet war-ready, but they would always have nuclear warheads with them. So in the crisis of November 1962, we were able to force the Soviets to back off and take the missiles out of there. But what they were trying to do was to establish a first-strike capability with missiles that had Washington within their range. The information from Penkovsky has been judged by people who were directly working with President Kennedy in this crisis, including his brother, Bobby, who said uh, that the information from Penkovsky was crucial. Yes. They've used words like essential and um, absolutely pertinent, and Bobby Kennedy said that this justified every penny that had been spent on the CIA for the whole 15 years of its existence up to that point. Wow. And then they went and accepted a false defector, Nasenko, and um, things didn't go so well for the CIA after that. Well, the Nasenko case, I think, um, is a blot on their, in their record, but I think that they will be vigorously defending him in the next weeks uh, and attacking my book. In fact, they've already started. So I think that they're not going to take it lying down, but they, like everyone else, is going to have to address themselves to the facts in my book. Mm -hmm. I'm not propounding a theory. I'm telling what I did, what I experienced, what I was told, how I was told it, and uh, how it affects this case. And uh, I think that's what any critic will have to address, not the whether or not Nosenko was or wasn't a plant. They'll have to say, well, okay, well, how about these facts? What kind of a man did they have to recruit in Nosenko to come over and pull this off? He had to be very tough. And um, there were there was a, a part in your book, you even have it in the appendix, uh, Peter Dariabin, uh, who you worked with, the earlier KGB defector, uh, interrogated Nosenko and came to certain conclusions about him. Could you maybe describe uh, these conclusions? Um, this was a KGB officer who defected... Uh, actually, also to me, it was in the time, my time in Vienna. He defected, and I was his first uh, handler, if you like, went out with him and took him to the States. Um, after a thorough and great debriefing, he uh, began to work with the CIA and proved not only that he knew, knew a lot, but that he had a gigantic knowledge of the KGB. He knew it inside and out. And he had actually served in Moscow headquarters at the time Nosenko claims to have done. And so what I did was simply put him into the interrogation room in a friendly manner with Nosenko to talk as colleague to colleague and ask him questions and see about his knowledge of this and that uh, procedure and things which any KGB officer would know. And Daryabin came out of it absolutely convinced, saying that any 
KGB officer who knew these details would be equally convinced that this man was a plant. And that is, he never worked in KGB headquarters because he didn't well, know where basic... Well, because he didn't know the most primitive things about the headquarters. But I think Derry Evans said in one place, and I think it's the uh, best way to, to look at this, is to say that either he didn't know or he didn't want to tell. But his not wanting to tell was so exaggerated that he did himself in because he, he proved absolutely unable to answer the questions. And I, I list a lot of the questions in my book, in the appendix on the Daryabin interrogation. Mm -hmm. It's very, very interesting to see how when you look at Daryabin's uh, interrogation and the other information and you put it all together, you do have to conclude that Nosenko was a plant, that he wasn't an authentic defector. Well, that's what I think. That's, that's it. Let me just remind the listening audience that with me is Tenant Bagley, author of Spy Wars, and uh, he's the former head of CIA Soviet bloc counterintelligence, and uh, he's a, a very distinguished former American intelligence officer. Uh, do you have any concluding thoughts that you could offer the listeners? Yes, I would say probably to look at this thing not as the question of whether or not the defector Nosenko was genuine or not, but when you look at these, you've got to look at what was the reason for their sending this man. It was not just to plant someone in the West. It was for very specific reasons. I'm not sure I know all of those reasons. I don't think anyone could, but I list a lot of them in my book, and they do involve the breaking of American ciphers, perhaps a little less important today because since then, American ciphers have been broken very badly by other treason, mm -hmm. treason by the Walker family in the American Navy, for example. But I would ask anybody who looks at this case to think what it was about rather than just uh, answer the question of whether or not Nosenko was a genuine defector, or, because he wasn't, but look at the meaning, look at the implications of the case. That's where the importance lies. And uh, the ability of the CIA to accept officially a myth uh, and for history itself to be falsified on a large scale. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, let's talk about how people can get your book. Your book is available in most bookstores now? I think so. Um, it seems to be selling quite well. It's available on Amazon, and it's um, published by Yale University Press and is I suppose, pretty widely disseminated throughout the country, but I can't say because I haven't been in the bookstores to check. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know. All right. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Tenant H. Bagley, author of Spy Wars. Thank you so much for being on the program. Well, thank you for having me and giving me this opportunity to talk about these things again. Would you be able to join us for an interview again sometime in the future? Sure, anytime. Well, thanks, and uh, let's keep in touch. Okay, Jeff. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. Plugging you into life. We are Live Radio 1020 WIBG. Whether it's Hurley in the morning, Henning in the afternoon, Dr. Jim Dobson in Focus on the Family. South Jersey's fastest growing Christian news talk. Now with more than a million listeners and hits at WIBG 1020. WIBG. 1020 WIBG. Or at WIBG.com. Plugging you into life. Now, once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. We've been talking about the spy war between the KGB and the CIA. We've been talking to Tenet Bagley, author of Spy Wars, a man who was head of CIA 
Soviet bloc counterintelligence. And what we've learned tonight is that the CIA was deceived during the Cold War, that they believed a false defector, that the Russians are so good at what they do, or rather we're so bad at what we do, that they are able to pull one over on us. It's big. It's very big news. Because people have believed that the U.S. won the Cold War. But in what sense did we win when the KGB is still in control over there and we are still not looking to our defense as we should? What Mr. Bagley has revealed tonight is that the CIA's leadership believed what it wanted to believe, just as our politicians do, that in America that seems to be the governing principle, is to judge things according to what make you feel good or, or the way you want them to be, not a real objective look at the facts. And, and this is a cultural problem in the United States. It's a tendency of all human beings to believe what they want to believe already. But in an organization like the CIA, like American intelligence, that fails in its fundamental task, well, it explains a lot, doesn't it? It explains or goes a long way to explaining 9-11, to explaining continued intelligence failures in the Middle East. We have to be defended, and we have to expect a better standard from our spies. And I, I want to wish our guest, Tenant Bagley, good luck with his book, Telling Truth to Power, explaining the way it really was, because he was the one that worked with the Soviet agents. He was the one that recruited them, interrogated them, talked to them. And so he's the one that knows what's really true, whereas the bosses at CIA believe what they want. The attempts by the Soviet Union to mislead us in every field, economic, military, strategic, was systematic and organized deception has been a major factor in Soviet policy since the beginning of the Soviet Union. They, they don't have the Communist Party any longer to control absolutely everything, but they do have KGB people in most of all the key posts in today's regime under Putin. I hope you will join me in next week's program when I'll be interviewing Claire Berlinski, author of Menace in Europe. Claire Berlinski has a Ph.D. from Oxford University in International Relations, and she knows Europe thoroughly, a brilliant woman with insights into why the birth rate's fallen in Europe, into European anti-Americanism and growing anti-Semitism. So join me as we hear a discussion about these issues on the Jeff Nyquist program. From the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast and from our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, Atlantic City Suburban Philadelphia's number one news talk station, you've been listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. We invite you to join us again next week at the same time. In the meantime, please visit Jeff's website at jrnyquist.com. Again, that's jrnyquist.com. Thank you for listening.